Colossians chapter 2, we'll read the verse, and we'll look at a couple of other verses in just a moment. But just to get us started, Colossians chapter 2, verse number 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I began really not a Bible study, but really more of a cultural study, I suppose, but what I call biblical thinking about critical issues. And so we began talking a few weeks ago when I was here last on, in particular, the cultural upheaval that our nation is, is experiencing right now. These are very unsettling times for America. The economy is teetering. The rule of law is being trampled on. The federal government taking on more and more power. And uh, I, I'm not as up to date on everything that's happening because I have greatly reduced my intake of news. And that has been very good for my health. Uh, but the next couple of years, very critical, I believe, to the survival of America. And one of the most dangerous ways that our republic and our way of life is being attacked is by really what is a cultural revolution. Now, I would tell you that one of the first things that you have to recognize is that the whole world lieth in darkness. And it is under the power of the father of lies, Satan, and that is why you can expect every voice out there to preach the exact same thing. Groupthink, herd mentality. Americans have lost their ability to think independently. They're content to let CNN and Fox News and MSNBC do their thinking for them. And the liberal mind. The liberal mind worships academia, it worships Hollywood. So if LeBron James comes out and makes a statement, it's as if a sage has spoken. Now, it's not, but it's as if a sage has spoken. And nobody thinks critically anymore. Hear the argument, ask questions, poke it full of holes, tear it apart, build it back. But you and I have an advantage, not just that we have, don't have the disease of a liberal mind. We have logic, we have reason, but we have another advantage, and that is that we have a Bible. We do not test philosophies by logic. We test philosophies by Scripture. When I hear something out there, I don't ask, does this sound right? I ask, is this biblical? And we ought to be well-versed in Scripture enough and so thoroughly soaked in the themes and the subjects and the mind of God that's revealed in Scripture that instinctively, when we hear something we know whether this is a strange sound or not. You may not be able to find chapter and verse, but you know by the teaching of the Holy Spirit that what we are hearing has an uncertain sound. So, so I began a couple of weeks ago talking about social justice, and we'll get into that a little bit, and then critical race theory and Black Lives Matters. And, and just very quickly, very quickly, I, just... I gave a very abbreviated uh, history of where it comes from and how that social justice is linked to Marxism. The utopia that Karl Marx wanted to build through classical socialism failed. Karl Marx hated capitalism. He wanted the proletariat, the common man, the labor of the peasant, to rise up and overthrow the evil system of capitalism and production, what was called the bourgeois. 
And, and Marx believed that the elites had devised a system through capitalism whereby they kept the peasant man down, the common man down. He can never achieve, he can never succeed, he can never rise to the wealth of the producers and the manufacturers. And the only way that that could be righted was through a class struggle uh, between the haves and, and the have-nots, those who control manufacturing and those who labor. The only way to correct injustices is by revolution. The peasants are going to have to take their pitchforks. They're going to have to rise up. They're going to have to overthrow their religion and overthrow their oppressors. And for that to happen, there has to be a class struggle. There has to be a division between the haves and the have-nots. But Marxism was a failed project. Coming out of World War I, there was a group of radical thinkers that said, we've got to turn this on its head. And I, I, I introduced you to a guy named Antonio Gramsci, and I, I may have said something about the Frankfurt School in 1923. They come over in 1935, Columbia University. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just very quickly running through the history. Antonio Gramsci, he, he was the guy that, that said, we're going to take classical Marxism, we're going to turn it into cultural Marxism, we're going to turn it on its head. And, 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 and in Gramsci's explanation, the elites have all the power. And since they have all the power, they have the ability to control the education and the flow of information to the masses. And they use that power to shape an ideology that is designed to keep them in power. It's called cultural hegemony. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. That built into capitalism is a network of lies told by those in power, designed to keep the little man in his place. So you and I would say, you know what, if you work hard, and if you, and if you, um, and, and if you uh, 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 better yourself, uh, boy, in America, you, you got an opportunity to, 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 go, to go up and to climb the ladder of success. They would say, no, 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 that's the lie. That's the lie that capitalism is told to keep you dangling that carrot out there on the stick to make you think that you can become what the wealthy are, but, but that's never going to happen. And in order to overthrow this capitalistic evil, Antonio Gramsci said it's not going to come from the bottom up. It's got to come from the top down. It's not going to be the peasant rising up and overthrowing the elite. It's going to be the elites from academia, from, from news media, from, from the court systems and on. And so what we have to do is we have to infiltrate the schools and the universities and media, even churches. We have to re-educate the people. This becomes the birth of cultural Marxism. Now, if you will go home and if you will listen closely to what is being told in the news, you will begin to pick up on this philosophy that permeates everything. And the name given to that philosophy is social justice. In theory, social justice says that society should be just or fair to every person. And the way that we make it fair is by leveling the playing field. Not just equality of opportunity, but equality of outcomes. That, that's very important. Everyone must have the same outcome. Even if we have to force that equality by taking away from those who have and giving it to those who do not. Justice in America has been redefined 
as fairness or equity. When you think that justice is the rule of law, but the rule of law means nothing to social engineers of the day. Justice is equality, not just equal opportunity, but equal outcome must be guaranteed. So the goal, the goal of social justice is fairness or equity through a redistribution of goods and a redistribution of opportunity. Another word for that would be redistribution of wealth. If you'll think about it, you'll begin to see that underlying philosophy behind so many policies in the corporate world, in universities, in the government, whether it is a company that has to hire so many minorities because of a hiring quota that has been imposed, or a university that has to admit so many black or, or, or green-haired people or whatever, regardless of entrance exams, or, or even in children's sports where everybody gets a trophy. The underlying philosophy is that justice has nothing to do with the rule of law. It is fairness. And it's not fair if everybody doesn't have the same outcome. Now, I'm telling you that's Marxism, only it's not in economics. It is cultural Marxism. There, there's a wonderful book, and I'll throw names of books out every once in a while if, you, if you're interested, but a guy named Calvin Beisner. Calvin Beisner wrote Social Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel. And in that book, Calvin, Calvin Beisner gave the illustration, and it's a classic illustration, and now a lot of guys have used it. He said, imagine a game or a sport where nobody is declared the winner. Now, I cannot imagine playing a game without the intent of winning. That is the purpose of the whole game. It doesn't matter whether it's checkers or basketball. The whole intent is to crush, to humiliate, to thoroughly defeat your opponent. Winning is the whole point of even playing. And if you're not playing to win, then just go home and don't even bother playing the game. Now, the philosophy behind social justice is that winning is inherently unfair. And that if you win consistently, then you probably are cheating somehow. Because to win consistently would embarrass the opponent. It would make them feel bad about themselves. And that would foster disunity. So here's what social justice says. At the end of the game, take all of the points earned by both teams, add them together. Divide the points evenly so everybody ends up with the same amount of points. Now you think that's ludicrous. But I'm telling you in Little League and Little Soccer or whatever it might be, that's exactly what they do. Everybody gets a trophy. You showed up, you participated, so you get a blue ribbon, all right? That, that, that's what happens. There's no winners or losers. We're just all winners. Now, if that is how justice is defined, then there can't be any real justice. Social justice is anything but just. Because according to this philosophy, as long as there is inequality, there can't be justice. It is not fair for one person to have more than another person. If one person has advantage over another, then those advantages must be taken away. Now, you, you know what happens. That in that philosophy, what that does, is it takes away from the, the incentive for the advantage 
and the disadvantaged to work hard to improve their lot in life. If I know that half of my points are going to be taken away and given to my opponent at the end of the game, then why would I try to score as many points? Or if I know that no matter how I play at the end of the game, I'm going to get half of his points, then why would I even try to better myself? That's exactly where we're at in our society. Now, let me take it a step farther. None of this is going to work if there's not some kind of class struggle. You can't divide people on the principle of hard work, personal responsibility, caring for one another, contentment with what you have. What there has to be is there has to be resentment. There has to be jealousy. There has to be division. In order for one person to struggle against another, he has to believe that that person has cheated him in some way. That is where group identity comes in. In order to make everything fair, social justice has to persuade a segment of society that things are not fair. Let me say it again. In order to make everything fair, social justice has to persuade some segment of society that everything is not fair. That's exactly what we have in America. We have identity groups. We have groups that are identified as oppressed or marginalized or cheated. And because you are in the group, then you are inherently owed something by the oppressor. By the way, that's where you get reparations from. Now, I would tell you, and we're going to talk about racism next week. Slavery is a dark blot on our nation's history. I, I think everybody would agree with that. But there is no person alive today who is poor or disadvantaged because their ancestor a hundred years ago was a slave. But did you know that there are many African-Americans who believe that they are oppressed, they are disenfranchised because of a history that happened over a hundred years ago? You have a person who believes that he is oppressed because he's been identified with an oppressed group. And since a hundred years ago, it was some white southern plantation owner that owned a slave. Then today, the reason why he's oppressed is because of white people. Now, that's exactly where we are. Now, group identity is critical for the next step, and that is group responsibility. Our legal system is built upon judging each person individually. You are legally responsible for your actions and sometimes for the actions of somebody under your care like in a little child. If I shoot a person with a gun, I am responsible. Maybe it is justified, maybe it is not, but I have to answer for that. If my grandchild gets my gun and shoots someone, I am responsible. Probably didn't leave it, probably left it unsecured through negligence, whatever, so I'm responsible. But if you shoot someone, I am not responsible for your actions. Individual responsibility. But social justice would never work with that definition of individual responsibility. So the idea of group responsibility has to be taught. And here's what it teaches. 
It teaches that everybody is in an identity group. You are either an oppressor or you are oppressed. In Marxism, the labels were haves and haves not. Now it is oppressed and it is oppressor. If you are in an oppressor group, you are guilty by association. If you are in an oppressed group, you have, may have never personally felt any oppression, but you are because of your identity. So to have a just society, we don't deal with just an individual being marginalized, but we deal with an entire identity group that is marginalized. There's a guy named Herbert Schlossberg wrote a book, Idols for Destruction, excellent book. If you, want to, if you want to read a great book written back in the in, in 1980s, 83, I think. But Herbert Schlossberg, Idols for Destruction, here's what he said. He said that there is no vice of which a man can be guilty and excite the indignation of somebody else as success. The one unpardonable sin in which he cannot be defended is his success over you. Of course, he's talking about the idol of jealousy and, and envy. And that has its roots in the hearts of every man. Schlossberg said, being poor is the greatest evil in humanitarian thinking because having material possessions is the greatest good. And he talks about poverty, how that poverty is redefined as wealth increases. Let me just give this to you, all right? And I'll get back to it here in a minute. Our poor in America is not the same as poor in Zimbabwe. Did you know at some time in America, men needed food, shelter, and clothing? That's what he needed. But now he needs steak, stylish clothing, and shelter with AC and carpet wall to wall. You see, as wealth increases, poverty gets redefined. Now, Schlossberg said that the idolatry of mammon, that is the dominant religion in America, and idolatry is driven by greed and envy, and social justice capitalizes on that. It's not fair that you're wealthy and I'm not. It's not fair that, that, that you own a house and, and, and I don't. That is why, that, that is why, Today, you have hiring quotas, you have admissions quotas and all of these. Because all of these are in an oppressed group in some way. And oppressors, on the other hand, that won't let them get ahead. It's envy. It's class struggle. It's identity politics. You're guilty by association. Now, this envy of group identity, it is baked into the minds of the common man that is walking around you today. And here's what it does. It breeds resentment of one group against another. And here's what resentment does. Resentment begins with a perceived injury or offense. It then builds envy against that person whom you think has injured you. And then it ends in rejoicing when you see that person likewise being injured. So the ultimate manifestation of resentment is vengeance. And envy is so insidious, if you can give, help me a little bit on the monitor, it is so insidious 
that it doesn't just stop at wanting what somebody else has, but it goes all the way to resenting that they even exist. Here's what Schlossberg said, here, and he captured it. He captured it when he said, I can forgive everything, but not that you are. That you are what you are. That I am not what you are. Indeed, that I am not you. The poet said, when heaven with such parts blessed him, have I reason to detest him. That, that's envy. That, that's what that is. And the insidious nature of envy is that it doesn't just covet what another person has, but no, it breeds resentment and hatred toward that person for having it. And then catch this tonight. Envy can never be satisfied. In fact, envy is more appeased by seeing someone deprived than seeing yourself gain what you covet. That, that's envy. You can give reparations to a group of people that's not going to satisfy anybody. It will until they see that somebody else still has something they don't have and there's going to be cries for more. Because envy doesn't want equality. Envy wants revenge. Now, how do we tie all this together, all right? And, and let me see if I can corral all these social justice. Justice, it is fairness. Fairness is, is equal outcomes. It's not fair that you got the job and I don't. It's not fair you have a paid house and, and, and I. And, and the reason why it's not fair is because I've been marginalized. I, I've been oppressed. I've been put down, whatever it might be, by some other group that oppresses me. I, I can't get ahead. I can't get ahead because, because the system is working against me. And I may get free welfare and free housing and free cheese and live like every other American and I don't personally live without, but I identify with a group that has been oppressed historically. It may be that you are, 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 are a left-handed, cross-eyed lesbian, but that has been a marginalized group, all right? And, and, and the world's not been fair to my group and so we have been discriminated against and anybody that is not a left-handed, cross-eyed lesbian has been part of the discrimination. Now, you think that's ludicrous, but I'm going to tell you, you're going to go to work tomorrow with somebody that believes that philosophy. The voices, media, Hollywood, sports, music, corporations, politicians, they're all preaching this. You're either an oppressor or you are oppressed. And if you are oppressed, then you must envy and resent the oppressor. Does that make sense to you? Now, now let, me just, let me just dig down just a little bit more. I envy you, I, I hate you, I resent you, and I want to see you destroyed. But I don't want to be seen as hateful and vengeful. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to mask my hatred. Catch this. I'm going to mask my hatred for a supposed love for something else. I'm going to hide my hatred for the oppressor by pretending to love the oppressed. There's a word for this. It is called virtue signaling. Here's how it works. You praise or you value a person in a marginalized identity group, and it makes you look compassionate. It makes you look virtuous. But in reality, you don't really care about that person in that marginalized group you're using, you're using virtue toward that person to devalue the person that you really, really hate. I'll give you an example of it. 
So some time ago, a black man in Minneapolis was arrested. In the course of the arrest, he died. George Floyd. Tragic incident. Or a black person is shot by a white police officer. What happens? The streets are filled with people holding up signs, black lives matter. Now, I hope that everybody believes that black lives do matter, just like all lives matter. We'll deal with that next week. But all of those people out there marching, so virtuous because they care for black lives. I'm going to tell you something. They're not out there because they care about black lives. That's not what they're there for. It's not their love and compassion that causes them to burn a city down. That's vengeance. No, it's their hatred for somebody else. Now, if they really cared, if they really cared about black lives, then what about all the other black lives that are being killed? Last year in Chicago, 81% of the homicides in the city was a black victim. Now that's horrible. Blacks are two and a half times more likely to be killed in Chicago than any other ethnicity. Well, why doesn't LeBron James say something about that? Why doesn't Oprah have a program about that? Could it be that not all of them are being killed by racist cops? Could it be that of the 81% of the homicides are black victims, that 90% of them are perpetrated by another black? If all of those people marching for Black Lives Matter really cared for black lives, they would demand that something be done about Chicago. They don't love black lives. They hate the police. They hate authority. So they mask their hatred for the police by pretending to have virtue for an oppressed group. When hatred dares not come out in the open, it hides itself behind a mask of virtue. The virtue of loving that which is the exact opposite of that which it hates. Now, if you think about it, there is actually a man in the Bible that championed that. Take your Bible, go to John chapter number 12. John chapter number 12. Let me show you a man who virtue signaled in the Bible. Look at John chapter 12 and look at verse number 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the head of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray. Now watch this. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Oh, the virtuous one. He cares for the poor. So compassionate. So concerned for the poor, his heart is grieved to see how this ointment is wasted. It could have been used to feed the poor. You, ever, you think Judas ever cared for the poor any other time? I wonder how much of his personal wealth is ever given to the poor. He don't love the poor. Look at verse 6. 
This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. He had the bag bear what was put therein. He didn't love the poor, he, he hated the Lord. But he masked his greed and he masked his hatred by signaling love for the poor. We have a culture tonight that is obsessed with virtue signaling. And it looks like love, it is actually hatred. Black Lives Matter, the organization, cares no more for black people than the Democrat Party does. It is not a group of compassionate people. It is a group of vengeful people. So, so I hope it's beginning to make sense. That society is unjust because society is unfair. Equal opportunity must result in equal outcomes. Group identity, you're either oppressed or you're an oppressor because of the group that you're in. And you have a nation tonight that is so divided into so many oppressed groups that you can't keep up with them. Blacks, Asians, women, lesbians, transgenders. And to mask our hatred for police and for capitalism and for conservative values, they signal, they signal their virtue for a group that they say they are oppressed. Now, when you buy into this mentality, you have laid the foundation for wealth distribution and socialism. But it will never come naturally to a society. It has to be coerced. And this is where government comes in. Government must address all of these perceived ills and make laws to correct them. And government really comes into the role playing the role of God. They're going to fix all of the ills of social injustice. So if you have succeeded and gotten wealthy, it was probably through unfair advantage. So you need to pay more taxes. Or government passes a law that you have to have a hiring quota. You have to hire a homosexual. They're protecting the oppressed from the oppressor. They're making everything fair by coercion. And they call it compassion. Did you know that government is incapable of emotions? Individuals have emotions. And it is not the role of government to meet your needs. You meet your own needs through industry and personal responsibility, and then you help meet the needs of family members and the society around you, but not by the coercion of government. Now, I, I, I've, got to, I've got to move along quickly. I'm trying not to talk fast, but I've got to talk fast, all right? This whole philosophy, there's a term for it, and it is critical race theory. Now, here's what critical race theory teaches. It teaches that America is a systemically racist nation with a rigged system against African-Americans, homosexuals, or any other group that they deem that is oppressed. And it says that systemic racism started with slavery in the early centuries of American history, but that it continues to the present time. And if you look at the disproportionate number of blacks that are in prison or police profiling blacks or whatever it might be, then that's the proof that we are systemically racist. And I'm going to deal with this next week. Not only is America racist, but America is homophobic, it is sexist, it's misogynistic, all kinds of other social crimes. Now, what happens if you belong not to one oppressed group, but two or more? For example, if you are a black person in America, then you are oppressed by a system that is rigged against you. If you are a black female, well, females have historically been downtrodden by the males, not paid as much money, not have as many rights. So, so now you belong to two oppressed groups, black and female. Well, what if you are a black female lesbian? 
Well, you can add one more grievance to the list. This is called intersectionality. Intersectionality, here's the Oxford Dictionary definition. The theory that various forms of discrimination centered on race, gender, class, disability, sexuality, other forms of identity do not work independently, but interact to produce particularized forms of social oppression. So a black lesbian female has intersectionality. She belongs to three historically oppressed groups. By the way, the higher your intersectionality, the more power you should have. And if you don't belong to any of those groups, you don't have any intersectionality, then you also should have no voice. So what critical race theory does is it assigns merits to how many oppressor groups you belong to and demerits to how many oppressor groups you belong to. By the way, you know who is on the very bottom of the intersectionality chart? It's me. I am male. I am white. I am heterosexual. I am cisgender, which means I'm still the boy I was born, when I was born with, and I, I, I'm fine with that. I'm Christian. I got five marks against me right there. In fact, if you'd like to, tonight you ought to go online. There's a website, intersectionalityscore.com, where you can actually, there's a sliding scale, and you can answer some questions, and you can see what your chart, what, how, how much intersectionality is, high being, 100 being the high, zero being low. So I took the test. I took the test, all right? So, so white, person of color, I'm white. Straight, gay, I'm straight. <coughs> male, female, male. Cisgender, transgender, cisgender. Rich, poor, I stayed in the middle. Younger, older, stayed in the middle. Able-bodied, disabled, I'm able-bodied. English as the first language, English as the second language, English as the first language. See, all of these advantages, disadvantages. Born in the USA, born elsewhere, I was born in the USA. More educated, less educated, more educated. Not Christian or devout Christian, I'm devout Christian. Not Muslim, devout Muslim, I'm not Muslim. Not Jewish, devout Jewish, I'm not Jewish. So I answered all those questions, and here's my score. I got a score of four. That's my score. I don't have any intersectionality. Now, now critical race theory says, and I say this, and you, 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 you begin to pick it up out, out there, that the oppressed or the powerless possess a greater degree of moral authority because of their lived experience, because of their experiences and their oppression, they see the world more clearly and they have more moral authority. And if you have white privilege, then your privilege blinds you. You don't really have anything to say on these issues. The more moral authority you have because you are oppressed, then the less moral responsibility you have. I say it again. The more moral authority you have because you've been so oppressed, then the less moral responsibility that you have. You have a built-in excuse for looting and burning down the city and rioting because you've been oppressed. And I can't say anything about it because I've never had the lived experience that you do. So a mob can commit crimes and get a pass if it is committed for the right reason against the right level of oppressor. Now if you'll watch, you can see what I'm describing at work in the world around us. Read the news. It is in corporations. It's in government. However, when you take this whole ideology 
And when you hold it up to the scrutiny of Scripture, you will find that it is wholly unbiblical. You see, as Christians, we look at the same problems that the world sees. Only we see real problems, not perceived problems. But we also see a sovereign God at work. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I recognize that God does give people privilege. But the privilege is not something to feel guilty for. It is something to be thankful for and to use to help those who are not as privileged. I drove through Pensacola the other day, and there's always panhandlers with a wheel work for food sign. And I drove through Pensacola, and there was a young lady standing on the street corner, and she had a sign. This lady couldn't have been 20, 21, 22, fresh-faced, and she just didn't look like she belonged. She didn't look like a wino, and it just kind of, it just kind of touched my heart. I don't always give money to panhandlers. Sometimes I do, but, but she just looked lost. She's standing right there. And I gave her a $20 bill. I, I, and she may go get it. I don't care what she does with it. Now, that's a very tiny example. The tiny example is that when you have and when you can, you give to help. Not because I feel guilty because I had something that she didn't. And not because the government coerced me in it. No. It's human compassion that makes you do that. Now, the first flaw of critical race theory, got to hurry, is that it makes sin a corporate affair. What they would call sin, racism, privilege, whatever it might be, is a collective thing. You may have never exhibited any racism personally, but if you belong to a group that is deemed racist, then you are the same by association. It is sin by association. The second flaw of critical race theory is that it makes morality based on race or class or wealth or privilege. But the Bible bases morality on obedience to God's law with no regard to race or class or wealth or privilege. Deuteronomy 6.25, it should be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded. Sin involves any action that violates God's law. It has nothing to do with the color of your skin or the group that you belong to. Every person, whether white or black, wealthy or poor, powerful or weak. If you sin, every person answers for his own sin as, as, as individuals. Good and evil is not determined by your race. It is determined by your individual actions. The Bible, the Bible never, the Bible never condemns a man for being wealthy or being privileged. He condemns him for what he does. And by the way, wealth and privilege in the Bible are the result of two things. The sovereignty of God and individual choice. 1 Samuel 2 and verse 7. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and he lifteth up. Proverbs 10 and verse 4. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand. But the hand of the diligent maketh rich. There are people who are poor because there was some injustice committed against them. But the answer is not to tear down somebody who did not commit the injustice. Wealthy and powerful people in the Bible are never judged for their wealth or power. They're only judged for their actions. Justice pursues what is right according to an absolute objective truth. Social justice pursues what is believed to be lacking 
for some based on what is believed to be possessed by others. Justice is driven by what is morally accepted and what God says is right. Social justice is driven by what is socially acceptable and what people say is right. Justice involves matters that can potentially impact anyone. Social justice involves matters that are believed to only impact specific groups. Social justice, critical race theory, it seeks to divide people. It emphasizes our differences. And politics is called identity politics. And our nation tonight is more divided than I've ever seen it in my lifetime. We are not one nation united. We're divided. But the Bible treats people as created equal in the image of God. And all men judged equally by the rule of law. And all that critical race theory does is it breeds resentment and envy and jealousy. But do you know who a great uniter of men is? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nowhere are men more united and equal than in the body of Christ. Galatians 3 and verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Our identity is not in our ethnicity. It's not in our position in society. We come together in the church as one body, diverse in every way, but all one body in Christ. And social justice and critical race theory, they are antithetical to the gospel. The Bible does not divide people by class or by privilege or oppressor. No, the Bible really divides people in not only two groups. That is sinner and saved. Lost and saved. There is only one group that you need to be concerned with. And I'm not denying that there are racial groups and ethnic groups and, and, and even class groups. But we don't judge people by their color. We don't favor or deny a person any social status for any external thing. We don't punish one and reward another just because of some group that they belong to. We look at every man as either saved or unsaved. And if he's saved, we preach the gospel to him. And if he's, saved, if he's unsaved, we preach the gospel to him. If he's saved, and we love the brother in the Lord. There is nothing that will unite a nation more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now very quickly, very quick, give, me, give me five minutes. This is how social justice has swallowed up in our culture. And next week, I'll deal with Black Lives Matters and racism. But social justice is more dangerous, not in culture, but when it is swallowed up by the evangelical church. Only when it comes into the church, it is not called social justice. Now it is called social gospel. The pragmatic, stylish, conscious, secret sensitive to churches of today have always borrowed from the fads of the unbelieving world and try to put a Christian slant to it. They don't believe that the wisdom of the world is foolishness as they foolishly buy into those philosophies. Now next week, I will give you some examples of social justice and critical race theory, how it has infiltrated the pulpits of Southern Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, and so many more. But the most troubling is when Christian leaders and churches begin to say that preaching a social justice message is actually preaching the gospel. Walter Rauschenbusch was an American Baptist pastor in Rochester, New York, in the turn of the 19th century. And he wrote several books, really the most influential book, A Theology for the Social Gospel, became the champion of what is now the social gospel. And Russian Bush taught that 
that Christians need to repent not only for personal sins, but for social sins. He believed that the gospel needed to be widened to include not just redemption from sins, but to encompass social ills as well. Here's what he said. He said, Public evils so pervade the social life of humanity in all times and all places that no one can share the common life of our race without coming under the effect of these collective sins. He said, Jesus did not in any real sense bear the sin of some ancient Briton who beat up his wife in B.C. 56 or some mountaineer in Tennessee who got drunk in A.D. 1917. So he didn't bear those sins. But he did in a very real sense bear the weight of the public sins of organized society. And they in turn are casually connected with all private sins. That is social gospel. I can give you quotes from Southern Baptist Church leaders who say that the gospel is not just to redeem men from sin, but it is to relieve society from the injustices that it suffers from. It is not to redeem individuals. It is to redeem society as a whole. That the gospel is to right societal wrongs and systemic injustices, and that is not true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not to relieve the poor. It is not to free the captive. It is not to give reparations to the oppressed and all of that. The gospel is that all men are sinners. They are transgressors against the law of God. And Jesus Christ died for one reason. That is to pay the penalty of man's sin and make a way for him to be reconciled to God his Father. And when you attempt to widen the gospel, then you pervert the gospel. And by the way, when you tell men that his problems are because he's oppressed by somebody else, not because of personal responsibility, you have taken away the need for repentance. Why should I repent if my problems are because of somebody else? Do you know, do you know who desperately wanted a social gospel? It was the Jews living in Jesus' day. They would have embraced Jesus Christ if he had came preaching a social gospel. And the ill of society that day was the yoke of Roman bondage. And if he came to deliver them from that Roman yoke, but Jesus didn't die to deliver the Jews from Rome. He died to deliver them from their sins. And no doubt, no doubt, Christianity is the world's solution to racism and slavery and crime and all other kind of ills because a Christianized nation is much safer, it is much cleaner, it is much moral to live in than a pagan one. But that is only because when God saves a man, he makes him into a new creature and that man begins to walk in a new way with the virtues that will make this world a better place to live in. That's how you transform a nation. Social justice, intersectionality, critical race theory. I, I hope that you can see, yeah, I'm hearing that. I'm seeing that it, it so permeates our society. And everything about it is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ.